Okay, we're here with John Martin, who will, I don't, I don't know if I'll screw it up for you, but he will be the eventual 33rd District uh, Florida State Senator, okay? And uh, he's been gracious enough to join us to, and uh, talk about all things John Martin. Maybe not politics, maybe a little bit of politics, maybe some education, maybe about lawyering, I don't know. What do you think, John? I don't know. Let's just talk. Uh, I've, I've heard your show. I know you had a show a little while ago with our good friend Todd Hanley, and <laughs> I, I enjoyed listening to that because I've known both you and Todd for a really long time, but let's just have some fun. Let's just talk. Uh, we both grew up here in Southwest Florida, and we can uh, talk about what our community just went through uh, with the hurricane. We can talk a little bit about, you know, obviously there's an election coming up. Midterm election is really important for the country in many states. Uh, and then... We can talk a little bit about the law. We can talk sports. We can talk whatever. What do you want to start with first? Uh, we, well, let's start off with the hurricane. I mean, it's the, okay. the elephant in the room, right? Yeah. It's uh, it, it's pretty wild out here. I drove to Cape Coral for the first time just a couple days ago. So we're we three weeks after the storm. Ooh. I yeah, it's about we, three weeks after the storm. Not three, three weeks. Was it two weeks on Wednesday? Or three weeks on Wednesday? I think it was three weeks on Wednesday. Yeah, wow. First, you know, so... It's yeah. been it's been a while, and I didn't want to come over to Cape Coral because my friends that were over here gotten hit really hard. So, um, you know, and, and I've been telling a lot of my friends, unless you're working, unless you got uh, you're in with a contractor and you know what you're doing, just you know stay off the roads, don't get in the way. Uh, but the schools are opening back up slowly but surely. I was out here with the Lee County District Superintendent uh, with some of his staff touring a few of the schools around the county. And here in Cape Coral, it was just eye-opening. We were turning down just a road not too far from here to go to Gulf Elementary, Gulf Middle, right by Ida Baker. And um, just seeing the roofs, it was just very reminiscent of days after Charlie, but a lot more roofs. There weren't that many roofs out here back when Charlie hit 18 years ago. And there's a lot more people affected, a lot more debris in the roads. It's it's pretty wild. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's uh, interesting, too. If you have listened to us before or if you've seen us on YouTube, we used to have windows. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we used to have windows. I used to have windows in this, in this room and in my kitchen room. Um, I was, I was telling John before, before we started recording here, it was, it, it was intense here. We stayed, we stayed here. We, we wrote out the storm because that is what we've always done is what I've always done. Whether it was Charlie at my parents' house, um, Irma came through right before I bought this house and I stayed, was going to stay down the road with my friend. We got the evacuation notice for his area. Um, so we left and went to a coworker's house who was further inland in a brand new um, two second story concrete built uh, condo or townhouse. And, and that was fine. And there was a lot of destruction, but nothing like this. Charlie was pretty bad. But coming out of here, like crawling out of our hole the next day, driving or going to look around it was crazy boats in in anything like in trees in driveways front yards just upside down and debris like like i've never seen uh, i expected the road lights to all be off uh there's no power anywhere but twisted or leveled stop signs um driving after dark was is, was insane the first week because you, you know, if you don't know where you are, and even if you knew where you were, it was hard to tell where you were and what was going on. But right, and then you don't see a stoplight because it's not on, and then you just yeah. blow through a, an intersection where somebody else could be blowing through an intersection. Yeah, 
was scary. John, did you stay during Charlie? No, oh, I had just Josh and I had just left to go to law school um, less than a week before Charlie hit. Oh, our parents, man. our parents did. I remember going through orientation at law school, and everybody was asking us about our home and our families. And uh, Josh was telling people about his family who lived on the north side of Fort Myers Beach, up by Pink Shelf, and they had, I think, it was nine feet of storm surge with Ooh. Charlie, which was a, it was incredible. People's mouths was dropping like nine feet of storm surge, but everything was built up on stilts back then. And the winds, of course, from the eye, because we've all seen the photo of Hurricane Charlie's hurricane force winds fitting inside of the eye of uh, Ian. And it's, it's a hard visual to comprehend until you see it, but the hurricane force winds of Charlie didn't extend all the way. Um, I mean, they didn't extend more than 30 miles. And well, and uh, so I stayed, I was here during Charlie. And I stayed at a girlfriend's place at the time. And um, I remember the dad bragging about his elevation and how soft his house was until his roof fell off <clears throat> and water just came in. But I, I think one of the bigger differences that I saw between the two storms was uh, they, they both had a similar path. So it's extremely similar. One made landfall in Upper Captiva, and then this one made landfall just north of Upper Captiva in the southern tip of Cayo Costa. Yeah, and, and you know, hindsight, you know, 2020 being that, should have left. I should have left because I stuck it out through Ian as you did. And you were smart, of course. You know, that's why. Someone had to text you. <laughs> 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 yeah. From safety. Yeah, until you couldn't hear from me anymore. But, um, yeah, our whole group was like, has anyone heard from Ray? In like yeah. A day? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the last thing we heard was your screen was gone. Like, oh, there goes there goes my screen. Yeah. But um, what I was going to say was that uh, I don't remember the storm, storm surge with Charlie. But with this storm... We got hit with the eye wall for like 24 hours. It was, it was, yeah, it was forever. And you're just like, man, when is this, when will this stop? It, it's just hammering left and right. Um, and there was no, the eye was just north of us, so we never got a break. Yeah, I, I kept telling uh, my girlfriend, like, the eye is right there. It's right, it's knocking on our door, and... It might pass over us, and we're going to get calmed down, and we'll be calm for a little while. And I kept saying that, like, 30 more minutes, and we'll be in calm, maybe another hour, and this thing's going to just break apart. Like, it mm -hmm. always does. We hit the eye, and then the back half of the storm just dissipates and goes away. Well, and that's the other thing that's special about the storm. If you're a Floridian, you know this. Once it hits land, it usually breaks apart mm -hmm. and dies. It gets weaker, yeah. It gets weaker. This storm did that. It you know, became a tropical depression. You're thinking it's going to just die now. No, it got stronger. It became a Cat 1, flooded you know, the middle portion of Florida, went up north to hit like Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. It just crazy. You say Cat 1. It was a Cat 4. Well, no, Cat 1. But inland. Well, well inland. Far, okay. yeah. it, it, it hit us at a Cat 4, questionable Cat 5. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't really matter. It was like three miles an hour shy of a Category Five, yeah. and that was sustained winds, and that was that was the highest reading. I I have no doubt in my mind that there this was a Category Five when it made landfall, um, with the gusts, of course. I mean, the gusts were just through the roof. Yeah, like two hundred miles, you know, over on Sanibel. Park. Yeah. But so so I just showed you this map right here. This was on Spaghetti Models. I don't know if you ever go there and look at all the storm information, but I remember from storms past. After the storm takes place, it's hard to go back and like 
actually put in place like where the storm was at a certain time, how long it was there. So I started taking screenshots of this screenshots on my cell phone of this boat US map. It it has this red that red circle right there. It shows like where the 155 mile an hour winds were, and then there's a red line right there. That's the extent of the hurricane force winds on the outside. Wow. So I took a screenshot here at 8:30 in the morning on September 28th when the hurricane force winds were starting to make landfall at Sandoval. So you fast forward through, and I kept taking these. This was three hours later. Sandoval was just starting to get hit with the 150 mile an hour winds. Mm. Three hours later. So you're getting battered with hurricane force winds for three hours before the tip of that 155 mile an hour wind wall starts hitting you. And then, you know, fast forward, fast forward to 30. Um, in the meantime, I have friends sending me video of downtown Fort Myers from, from the roofs of one of the tall buildings down there that shows water flowing through my old law office. Um, I mean, then, there were boats that were going down the road. And then you know. at 6.30 p.m. on that night. So we're talking 10 hours later, you can see this, the red, that dark red circle is still hitting Sanibel 10 yeah. hours later. Crazy. 10 yeah. hours later. And it's, and, and you see that the strong winds, the rotation, that counterclockwise rotation, is pushing all that water right up. This was the worst case scenario of storms that everybody had, all the old timers in Fort Myers had always talked about, oh, when Donna hit the 1960s. This is what they were talking about, but this was way more powerful. And of course, there's hundreds of thousands of additional people present uh, in this county. Yeah. Powerful, but huge. But again, mm -hmm. once it hit inland, it should die. No, it decided to become the Cat 1 and go up north. So crazy once in a lifetime storm, do you think? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, all and not for the sake of having a short life, but hopefully for the sake of not having yeah. so another this, storm like that. This was definitely worse than Donna, um, right? So I wasn't around for Donna. Neither but, was I, but that's the one we John, all but, John's still a young guy, man. What are you trying to do? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just meant like, do we, has it been determined that it is, it was worse, it caused more damage, it was clearly it more, caused probably more a longer storm, taking more lives, do we have a death count, yeah, a total death count? Did we, did well, before we get there, like, this is the most costly storm okay. in history. In okay. history of in history. It's more expensive than Katrina, we were looking this up the other really? day. Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, already? Yeah. And the, the debate is, this storm is just gigantic, but the other debate was, uh, and this would be an interesting, maybe we could go into politics, I don't know, was you hear a lot of people talk about, oh, this is a result of climate change because the Gulf water is warmer all the time. And we can have a debate whether or not that climate change is due to you know, man-made, maybe it's a bit accelerated, I don't know. It doesn't matter. What, what the point is that when you look at the history of, uh, of our Florida, we had six hurricanes hit uh, Southwest Florida uh, back in like the uh, 50s and 60s, or maybe it was the 40s, um, that did way damage and was devastating. And then you have a calm for a while. And so when we were looking this up and we're tracking the amount of storms that hit this area, we basically, <coughs> my wife and I, it was, it's hard to say that they're more frequent and they're more devastating. It looks like they're probably just part of the cyclical pattern of weather-related events, and this was just a big. Granted, the Gulf is pretty, the Gulf is pretty warm, but climate changes. I don't know if that's a result of man-made change, but climate changes. Period. The point is that this was a devastating hurricane, and I'm tending to fall in the camp that this is probably once in a lifetime, 
and we won't see anything like this for a while. And I don't think this is a sign of uh, climate change and weather-related events that's going to be wreak havoc to the nation like most people are claiming it is. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. So you touched on a few things there. Um, one, of course, is are the are the oceans are the, is the Gulf of Mexico warmer than the oceans the Gulf of Mexico 100 years ago, 50 years ago, a thousand years ago? I know at some point there were glaciers in North America long before humans ever invented the combustion engine. So there was warming taking place. There has been warming taking place. Now, is it accelerated because of human activity? Um, I don't think you need to even get to that point because nothing that we can do regardless um, right now in, in any practical measure is going to change the fact that uh, we're in this situation. So how to, the question that we need to grapple with is um, how should the government move forward? How should private companies move forward? How should insurance companies move forward? And of course, how, how do you and I move forward? You know, do we continue to build houses? Uh, do we continue to move closer to the water? Should maybe we say, yeah, let's move a little bit further inland. Um, you know, there's parts of Lehigh Acres that didn't get any storm surge. And there's a whole lot of empty lots out there. But why are people moving to Cape Coral instead of Lehigh Acres? And I think we need to start addressing those concerns uh, and those issues so that we don't have a mass loss of life. God forbid this, this is not the worst storm to hit uh, in the next few decades. I think that would be horrible if whatever the legislature does, whatever our human decisions do, is move people closer to danger, especially people that can't afford uh, to have the ability to evacuate or people that are in special conditions that need a lot of government assistance to evacuate. Um, you know, what are, what are we doing? What's our role as individuals and what's the government's role to, to make sure that people are taken care of? And uh, I think in either situation, I don't think it's the government's job to subsidize insurance to the point where they're encouraging people to live in dangerous areas. Yeah, I think you bring up a very valuable point. They're called barrier islands. Barrier islands for a reason. If we didn't have those barrier islands, the toll and loss of life on Southwest Florida would be that much bigger. But what we've done, as far as civilization is concerned, is exactly what you said. Those, be those barrier islands are beautiful. Let's move people there. Let's dredge the, uh, the marshes of like Southwest Florida and let's build you know, houses on them. And so the places that got flooded, that saw the, the, the storm surge, that's Mother Nature. Mother Nature doesn't care if you build a house on a marsh. It doesn't care if you build a house on a barrier island. Mother Nature is going to do what it's done for thousands and thousands of years. Unfortunately, we've paid the price. I don't know if it's anybody's right, just as you said, to tell somebody that they can or cannot live in an area or subsidize their insurance so that they can live in an area. I don't like the idea that developers are able to use loopholes and tactics to push back preservations, like the Cypress preservations that we've had down here, so they could build more housing, because I think what that does is it does encourage people to move there and live there. That being said, so I think from that perspective, I think there could be some regulation into that. But at the same time, I think a person should have the freedom that if they want to live on a barrier island, fine. But build your house to code. That's the other part. Those homes, those businesses that existed on those places were not up to code. Many of them were 100-year-old homes. They were wood frames. They were not meant to withstand that type of hurricane. Now, this area has changed forever. Sanibel, Pine Island, Fort Myers Beach, 
they're never going to look like they did before. You're going to have big commercial companies come in. People are going to buy properties. They're going to develop huge buildings and houses that are going to be up to code that could possibly withstand future hurricanes. That being said, you've lost some of the Floridian charm, but you've gained a little bit more security and stability as well. Uh, so I, I, think, I think that point is well taken that what is the individual's responsibility? How are they accountable? And then at what point does a government, whether it be federal, state, local, whatever, uh, what is their role in that decision-making process? And from your perspective, you know, running for Senate, uh, what would your statement be to your constituents? Or what is your position as far as like uh, what you want to be able to do? Because I know you, you're a very caring person and you care about your constituents as well as everybody else in this area. Um, John has reached out to help many people uh, during this, this time of need. And uh, so from your perspective, what is your perspective as far as, far as where, where do you go forward in helping the individuals of Southwest Florida? So right off the bat, I know the governor announced yesterday that there's going to be a special session in December um, to address some of these issues that are coming up with insurance companies uh, to address the risk. Because ultimately what we want to make sure is that the people who live here who want to be here are able to rebuild, you know, within within reason. Obviously, you don't want to build a dangerous situation. You don't want to build a house that's going to get blown down in the next storm or, or, or surged out. But with that, with that expectation comes the expectation you're going to spend more money to get the house up to new codes. And there's new FEMA flood maps that are coming out next month. So this is this is this could be a one-two punch that I think will ultimately affect. Uh, tremendously the, the geography and the landscape and the topography of our barrier islands like uh, Ray was talking about with uh, private equity coming in, private equity is already here. And basically, uh, whether metaphorically or, or, or realistically, people walking around with briefcases with cash offering money to, to people uh, who are just not going to either have the money to rebuild after their insurance uh, comes in um, or they're just not going to want to invest the time to rebuild and they'll just take the money and move somewhere else. But with that, we're going to have a Fort Myers Beach that looks drastically different. Sanibel, I think, can, is, is better situated than Fort Myers Beach to stay the same. And uh, the types of people that live there, the types of houses that are there, it's second, third, fourth houses of individuals. Fort Myers Beach tends to be, um, of course, people have investment properties there, but a lot of, there's a lot of people that live year-round in Fort Myers Beach, a high percentage of that. And uh, those people um, are going to be the ones potentially in stuck between where do I live now and can I afford to rebuild, assuming I had insurance, assuming I had flood insurance and or enough wind coverage. And a lot of people didn't have either because they weren't required to because they owned their houses outright. Uh, they didn't have mortgages that required them to have wind insurance or flood insurance. And even if you had flood insurance, a quarter million dollars plus 100,000 for contents is not gonna rebuild your you know, house, with, especially with the new codes uh, that are maybe gonna cost you six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars to replace what you currently have. So I think the government's job and what we're gonna grapple with in this first legislative session, special session before the first legislative session that I'm gonna be a part of, we're gonna do our best to make sure that we give the resources to the local uh, governments to make sure that their infrastructure 
is taken care of because of course if there's not infrastructure there if there's no roads there's no electric there's no plumbing uh there's no government services permitting offices i mean literally city halls were wiped off the, the face of the earth with the storm so you have to have that in order to even start the rebuilding process but making sure that that's in place and then secondly making sure that the people who want to who want to remain who want to build have the tools available to them uh, doesn't mean they're going to get free money it just means that they're going to have access to uh to help from the government uh make sure that their insurance companies are doing their jobs uh paying premiums uh, assessing the value of their loss and cutting checks to them as fast as possible we don't need insurance companies to come in and slow down the process but uh, we also know they have a they have a heavy lift and there's a lot of claims out there so we want to make sure that there's nothing nothing left untouched that is getting in the way to slow down that process that individuals or local governments have to rebuild. Now, uh, that, I think you bring up another point. One of the scary thoughts is that, uh, will people be able to afford to live here? Mm-hmm. And uh, that that is uh, due to the fact that we had a hurricane in 2017, Irma, another huge storm that, it was bad, but it wasn't Ian at all. Uh, but a lot of insurance companies raise their homeowners uh, premiums uh, in many cases like they either uh, doubled it or tripled it in certain areas of Florida. The expectation is that they're going to do that again uh, just because the argument, and again, whether or not you agree with the concept of climate change, there's this idea that Florida is going to be sinking, going underwater, so some insurance companies might be prepping for that, plus the hurricane. Uh, damage, you know, and then and then also one of the reasons uh, that they used for uh, doubling homeowners insurance premiums was that there was so much fraud that was created from Hurricane Irma. Uh, what do you think about as far as like, will people, will people be able to afford to live here, or are people? I know some people probably have to move, but do you think do you think a good majority of people will have to move because? I don't know, because they can't afford to live here anymore due to insurance, during the commercialization, um, and, and just the fact that they can't build their home? Well, that's a really good question. And I think that ultimately you're going to find that the more government stays out of the solutions, the easier it is for people, the easier it will be for people to return or rebuild. Um, I think sometimes we, we as voters, we as Americans get caught up with and the government has all this power um, and I need money or I need influence or I need something fixed. So let me go to the government to get it. And a lot of times what you see, especially with the, the bigger issues that we've been faced with on the national level over the past couple of decades, like healthcare, for example, is the government tends to create so many of the problems that we then go back to the government to beg to fix. So think of, think of healthcare in general. And I know, I know you're in healthcare and we have, you're, you're think, completely right. Think back 15 years, like, well, why is it so expensive to get treatment from a doctor? And then you start talking to the doctors and the people who actually work in the facilities, like, well, the federal government requires this and this and this and this. Well, I can't afford my health insurance. Well, it's because the doctor isn't just seeing you. He's running a business with, you know, 30 employees to fight insurance regulations that are put in, that, that are, many of them put in place from a good place, the, the good intent. There's, there's good reason behind it, but the, bureaucracy ends up getting in the way of the doctor and the patient relationship. And this could potentially be a situation where, uh, look, insurance companies exist in their most basic understanding um, of the relationship to fix 
property uh, or to compensate somebody who purchased their product if an accident happens, if something that is foreseeable but drastic and, and hopefully doesn't happen very often in their life, if that happens. So the insurance companies, when they started dealing with individual consumers as opposed to when they started dealing, when they were dealing with shipping companies in England hundreds of years ago, uh, that's you know, where Lloyd's London uh, came to be and, and started getting all this power because uh, they were insuring ships. Only a certain amount of ships could actually make it back. And so statistically, not everybody would have their trips paid for them um, by, by what they found in the new world. So the insurance companies came because somebody said, hey, if, uh, if we bet on a certain percentage of these ships coming back, um, we can make sure everybody has compensation and not one individual uh, person is, is putting too much out there on their own. They're not putting their, all their fortune out all at once uh, with, with, no, um, with no possibility of getting repaid on the back end if, if their ship sinks. So if somebody's house burns down, we expect an insurance company that insured them to pay for their house to be rebuilt. That's, that's just the most pure, simple uh, understanding of what an insurance relationship is. And there's a contract that enforces that. And the problem that we've seen since, and I'll go back to Hurricane Andrew, when the first storm that hit America, uh, or Florida, um, had over a billion dollars in damage, um, we started to say, wait, these insurance companies are going to raise their rates now? The people aren't going to be able to afford to go and build a house in Miami after Andrew if the rates go up. And so the government got involved and said, whoa, wait a second, insurance companies, we're not going to let you raise your rates um, as much as you want to raise your rates. And so that was the first, I think, the first issue that these insurance companies had to face was, well, the government's not going to let us raise our rates to where our actuaries think that our rates should be in order to help us absorb the cost of another hurricane um, and the property damage that comes with it. And so the government... Um, has taken a lot of steps to allow the insurance companies to keep their rates lower. Uh, some of it has to do with tort reform and, and these arguments that there's too many people out there suing insurance companies. Well, I don't think anyone's going to question that Irma destroyed a lot of roofs. And the insurance companies statistically are never 100% right. Um, and there had to be some lawsuits. Well, now that so many roofs were destroyed, statistically there's going to be way more lawsuits. And if you remember Irma and seeing the satellite imagery, this was a wide storm. It literally had hurricane force winds that went the entire peninsula. So there was nowhere to evacuate if you wanted to get out of hurricane force winds. So unfortunately for us in South Florida, it made landfall here. We saw the worst of the winds here in Lee County and Collier County and then Charlotte up through um, Arcadia. But of course there were a lot of lawsuits and there was a lot of litigation and, and of course with that comes fraud because there's bad actors out there that see an opportunity to make a couple extra bucks um, overcharge for a roof replacement and because like in bad situations uh, resources are stressed so thin more people get away with the fraud so right. we had to we had to figure out what to do and so the legislature this past year and I don't agree with all the changes that were made but what they did was basically make a compromise with the insurance companies because insurance companies were told they can't raise their rates, but then their only other option is, well, if I can't raise my rates and break even, then I'm just going to leave and quit selling the product. And then the state of Florida said, no, 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 don't quit selling your product. Um, we have this other thing over here called citizen's insurance. 
what we'll do is we'll allow you to put your more high risk policies over here in citizens, which is basically backed by the taxpayer. And then the insurance companies, the for-profit insurance companies can insure less risky houses and less risky properties. Okay. And then the legislature said, all right, and then we're going to set up $2 billion of, of money that's available in case you guys fail or in case you need, you need some extra money. So basically a reserve for insurance claims. So they did a few things, basically begging these insurance companies to stick around. Well, I don't think anybody anticipated that there was going to be such a big storm statistically after Irma hitting us. And again, the winds, the winds were one thing. And if, um, if you have a chance to look at some of the NOAA imagery that was taken right after the storm, you'll see that a lot of the roofs did a very, very good job. Right. A lot of the roofs did a good job. And part of that is because, well, all the old roofs that were here five years ago were, were destroyed in Irma. I had a house in Alba, actually, where the eye went over in Irma. I got a new roof, so I assumed that that roof would be fine now. But what we weren't anticipating was the flood surge. Uh, even though it was predicted, even though it's always talked about, if you grow up here, you're warned about the flood surge all the time. It never happens. So it becomes the boy that cries wolf. It doesn't mean that it, there wasn't actually a wolf out there. It just means that ah, the wolf never ate my sheep. So therefore, I should just keep my sheep out in the field. Well, this time the wolf ate all your sheep and the storm surge came and we are dealing with a completely different situation. And what's unique about the storm surge versus the wind damage and how the insurance companies work, now your homeowner's insurance does not cover flood. So unless you live in a flood zone, your mortgage company doesn't require you to buy flood insurance. Well, there were a lot of houses that weren't in flood zones that got flooded, they got storm surge. Uh, there's a lot of houses that had storm or that had flood insurance that don't have enough flood insurance to compensate them for their losses. Uh, we have I mean, we have a mutual friend that lives very far inland in Lee County who had storm surge in his house, mm -hmm. and it wasn't a whole lot of storm surge, but it was enough to make a very 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 big claim. And frankly, you most of the houses down here, especially with the supply chain shortages that we've experienced since COVID in this country, the cost of building materials far exceed any any of the 250 policies that it takes to, I mean, just picture building a house, picture, picture what's damaged in a house, $250,000 isn't going to cover it. And him and his family are drastically affected and changed from this. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, but that, that means, I, I, this is why I love this fucking guy, okay? Because every time I talk to him, I do learn something new. I didn't think about the historical extent or context of insurance. So I'm glad that you're able to bring that back around. Uh, let's go, let's go, let's, I think we've done a pretty good job with Hurricane. Let's move forward with something a little bit more, you know, more fun, something a little less depressing. But thank God, your family was good. Your family's taken yeah. care of. Your family was good. Everybody survived. My family was fine. Everybody survived. Um, Even though you wrote it out by yourself. I wrote it out by myself. Your family was safe. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is like, she denies. She denies this. By the way, uh -huh. she she was texting everybody and reaching out to everybody about is Ray okay? Where is he? What's going on? Is he alive? I never got a check on. Well, she doesn't like it. No, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, she was uh, she was really really worried. And then when we lost you know communication, she freaked out and rightfully so. I guess that means she loves me. But uh, either that or she's trying to figure out when she put a claim in for insurance. The house, yeah. It was right. more about the house. Or, or life insurance, maybe. 
I don't know. But uh, yeah, everybody, everybody's good. Uh, John was smart. He got the hell out of here. My um, wife was smart. I was smart by following her. Oh, is that, is yeah. that She's like, we got three kids. We we know what happens. I mean, if it's if it's sixty mile an hour winds for a few hours, or if it's under fifty mile an hour winds, uh, the power's gonna go out, and it's just a matter of time. And we have three little kids: a three year old, a one year old, and a six month old at the time of the storm. And we weren't looking forward to spending time with no electricity with the three kids, and without the ability to kick them outside and say, go play outside, mm. you know, go, go swim in the pool. It's, uh, I don't want to be inside with no electricity and nothing to do for, for 12 hours, let alone a, a three-year-old. No, it sucks. I think the next time, because there will be a next time, mm-hmm. I think we should just all take off as a, you know, we have that little friend group that we have. Mm-hmm. We should just go to Disney World, all of us. Mm-hmm. And, and I know they got flooded in Orlando, but even still, they're built for Category 5 storms, and they have entertainers that come in. And entertain. That Epcot ball survived a lot of storms, especially in 04, so I think that's a safe place to go hide. I'll tell you, I have never wanted to evacuate. I always thought, hey, you know, whatever, I'll just sit it through, you know, grew up here, never saw the storm surge. It came halfway up the driveway, Um, but I have been told by my girlfriend that next storm, we are evacuating. I said, I gave one or two butt butts. She said, no, no, next storm, we will not be here. So, so, so and she's never been to Disney World, so that just might be a good idea, a great idea. <laughs> so this could get expensive though, because everyone else might have that idea now. Put it on the radio. <laughs> That's true. We don't have that many that listeners. <laughs> we, have, we have tens of tens, right. maybe just ten of ten. So um, everybody in here included. Right. So, so one of the issues that's going to happen, and you're absolutely right. There's people that have now lived through a horrible experience, and they're talking about how long this thing was just blowing. I mean, it was like an F3 tornado sitting on top of your house for, for 10 hours. That's what the storm was. Right. And when we see the devastation of tornadoes in the Midwest that rip through towns, those those are on the ground for 30 seconds. They're not sitting on top of a house for hours. And that's what happened. And that's, that's a traumatic experience. Um, there's going to be a lot more evacuations. And uh, the roads are going to be very, very crowded. I was kind of shocked at how easy it was to get from here over to the East Coast. Um, on Tuesday late afternoon. I worked Tuesday morning. Um, that was after an evacuation order was issued for for the islands, barrier islands in category A and, and B. And I think I live barely in B, um, a little bit further inland than Fort Myers. I'm barely outside of A. I learned that today. I looked. I knew or thought I was in B, mm-hmm. and but I, I pulled it up. I'm like, oh, I'm seven streets from from A. Okay. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay, I was a little bit closer, closer than I thought. But you were driving across the state Tuesday afternoon. I got home, boarded up the windows. They're riding around in the streets with the megaphone, like everybody, we're mandatory evacuation, evacuated. Now is the time to go. Once I couldn't hear them anymore, I went for a run in the rain, just running. It's windy and rainy. I'm like, this is, this is kind of nice, watching some people still boarding up. It's probably the last time we're gonna get to do that, right? Did you, did you enjoy that run in the rain? I did, yeah. Um, because it was because it wasn't like thunder and lightning rain. It's always thunder and lightning rain, but this was a time you could actually get out and run through the rain. So that was kind of nice. Yeah. Well, when John and I were kids, and we would get these like tropical depressions coming through, tropical storms, and maybe like a hurricane that you thought was gonna be a hurricane, you just get some of the winds and the water. Mm-hmm. It was 
very common for us just to go out to the beach and just jump in the water. Yeah. Like those idiots that <laughs> next to the pier, that the pier is gone. And I, I hope those, those kids are all right. But nobody really evacuated. When Irma hit, everybody almost eva basically evacuated. I was stuck. Everybody, people were stuck on, on 75 and 95 and Alec Alley. This one, very, very few people evacuated. At the same time, his shelters, they could house like 40,000, 50,000 people, only has like 4,000 people. So nobody really thought mm -hmm. that this storm was going to be that intense that long or that was really going to even hit us. They thought, no, it's going to probably go up and hit the Tampa region. And that's because every track, including the American track, this is where I'm a little pissed off, John. I, the European track wasn't, wasn't sitting over Tampa for very long. I think it was like one or two days where it was over Tampa. But, but this is part of the problem. we got an American flag here. <laughs> We're talking about the American track was way off, but the European track, which apparently is... It's been spot on for years, and you can find it at spaghetti models, and that's that's where I get a lot of my information from. Yeah, that was the last picture I saw. The last I saw, I'm like, oh, wow. U.S. is going to Tampa, Europeans going to us, and I knew that they've been more accurate, and I thought, oh, shit. Well, then this is the misleading more than brush. But we're we're America, man. <laughs> we're we're American. We so, but don't shit, right? don't forget what makes America good is we borrow from everybody. Right. You can yeah. drive down Forty One here in El Prado and have food from around the world. You don't have to go to Epcot. You don't have to get on an airplane. We have it right here in every city in America. But I think this is kind of where the where the tracks get misleading because we we looked at that that map earlier that I showed of the wind speeds and the counterclockwise rotation. Well. What does the track show you? It shows you the dead center pinpoint of the storm, of the eye of the storm. That's where it's going. But when you create your cone, you're following the tracks. You're not, you're not creating the cone for wind speed. And I think that's where it gets a little bit misleading. So if you have, oh, yeah. if you have wind speed that's, that's hurricane force wind speed that's 60 miles outside of the eye, well, you know, throw that in the track, throw that in the cone. And I think that maybe there's an opportunity here for, uh, Noah to to start creating maybe less of like a hard line because nature isn't made of hard lines. Nature right. nature is is more blurry and curved lines, and that's that's what the hurricanes do. That hurricanes don't follow a a speed limit. They don't follow a track. But they don't try to keep their their hurricane right in the middle of a channel in the in the intercoastal. Uh, they're they're going where other forces are pushing them, and sometimes that's a little bit blurry. It's a little bit messier. And I think we need to kind of communicate that a little bit better on a on a visual aid. I'm just saying, if we're going to make America great again, the American track has to get one right. That's it. Catch up. But, you know, going to what you're saying, though, as far as, like, uh, you know, humans just act too slowly. Uh, there are a lot of businesses that were opening, that were still, like, working and available Tuesday night, you know, till the morning up. And, you know, you're right. Nobody looked, they all looked at that center line down the cone and didn't consider the cone itself and the probability that it could shift. But I have to say that DeSantis, when Irma hit, Irma was huge. I thought Rick Scott did a great job. But I, hindsight, I'm like, ooh, could he have not declared a, a national disaster or state of emergency a little sooner? That way businesses and people could have prepared a little bit better and they didn't get stuck on the roads. DeSantis didn't mess around. This guy, and I'm not, I don't belong to either party. But I'll tell you, man, he handled he handled his job. He did he went above and beyond what any other governor has ever done. He declared a state of emergency the week prior. He was advocating for people to like prepare for the storm wherever they were within that cone. 
That's what he was saying. He wasn't saying, don't look at the center line. Think about the cone. He brought in resources from other... He, he collaborated with other governors. I've never seen another governor do that before. And pooled resources and brought them in just so they could wait, wait until the storm dies down a little bit so we can go on search and rescue and start recovering right away. He so, nailed it. So... You think of you think of his public partnerships and think of his private partnerships too with FPL and the power companies, uh, power companies that we saw in Irma from all over the country. Uh, they were actually stationed. I think they had fifteen different locations in the state of Florida where they had thousands of trucks just waiting, waiting for the storm to pass. So I talked to some some uh, uh, representatives from FPL. They had people who were stationed over in Miami, just like in Weston, just on the other side of Alligator Alley. I mean, almost like they were they were horses at the Kentucky Derby waiting for the gates to open. And as soon as the wind speeds in Collier County got below a certain number where it was safe for them to drive their big trucks over there and, and put their buckets up in the air and start repairing power lines, they were literally driving. I mean, squealing tires heading across Alligator Alley to start working up. And then as soon as the storm cleared Lee County, they were heading into Lee County and they were they were working to repair power lines immediately. And then as soon as the storm cleared Central Florida, the the uh, linemen and the trucks that were up in North Florida that were staged there, within two or three hours, were down um, in Southwest Florida, starting from Tampa down into Manatee, Sarasota County, and Charlotte. So, I mean, it was they were swarming in. And look, uh, this is an FPL's first rodeo; uh, they've been around. But I think it was incredible to watch all these different facets of government and private companies, utilities. Uh, get together to get that infrastructure up. Because we talked about it a little, a few minutes ago, individuals should have the ability to make decisions and shouldn't feel pressured to either stay or leave or sell under duress. Like my house is never gonna get back up because the roads are not fixed, the power's not on. These guys were out there, uh, men and women were out there immediately fixing. Uh, so while the, while the storm is battering central Florida and dumping tons of rain on central Florida, our power lines are literally being put back up um, in Southwest Florida. It was incredible to see that. That is exactly right. Like, it hit Wednesday. It didn't really, like, start to leave Southwest Florida until, uh, you know, Thursday midday, okay? Those those uh, workers, those, those line workers, not just line workers, you're talking about he was bringing in water, trying to repair the water systems. He was, anyway, they came in Wednesday night, in the middle of the night. The winds died down. They came in like at three in the morning mm -hmm. and started then, and they didn't stop. They worked in shifts, and they didn't stop until people were able to get their power on. And he brought in water, and he brought in, he brought in gas, and he brought in. And then think about this: we had bridges that collapsed, Santa Bell Causeway collapsed, and people were like, "Man, that's gonna be a that's a couple that's a like two three year project right there." No, he 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 worked with people to build to make a temporary fix to to to. to you could probably speak to this better, to repair that bridge so people can get out and people can get back to their homes to assess the damage and see what's gone, you know, what happened. That's a feat that I've never, ever, ever seen from a, from any Florida, uh, Florida government or any politician as far as, like, a natural disaster. It, it, I, man, he nailed it. He nailed it, and you can see why he's so popular and why people love him. He did well, a great job. Even, you mentioned Plummer, and... One of the incredible stories I heard was during the storm as the hurricane was bringing the surge, you know, where Health Park is located, mm -hmm. in the Lee Health System, they lost water, uh, they, of course, lost power, 
the first floor was flooded. Uh, the employees that drove their cars to work that day watched as their cars just filled with water. In the they were in a lake. You yep. look at the pictures, and the building is in the center of a lake. That's what it looked like. It, it was it was incredible, but they lost power or they lost water, and water is is important for many respects in a hospital, um, not just power. I think we take water for granted, and I think there's going to be a hard look back at the lease system, which actually has this water supplied by three separate government entities: Cape Coral, Fort Myers, and Lee County, all of which failed at some point uh, for all four of the major hospitals uh, that were affected. But during that storm, the uh, water main broke down towards Fort Myers Beach. They were thinking it was close to Health Park. Uh, they literally took a, a plumbing engineer and put him in an MRAP from the sheriff's office and drove him towards that area. Uh, and they had divers in the water with an engineer in the middle of the hurricane trying to restore water to Health Park. So yeah. there's, these, there's these stories that are starting to surface because, of course, in the middle of it, everyone's social media is down. Uh, it's, it's taking time to catch back up, but as we go back to work and we start to rebuild, we're learning more and more of these stories that uh, just everyday hometown heroes doing doing incredible things in, in very trying times. But let's talk about the bridges. I mean, is there anything more demoralizing than than seeing a bridge to an island just collapse and then thinking what what a bridge represents? You know, the metaf metaphorically, what is what is a bridge when you see a bridge? Yes, the connection. Words and images come to your mind, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we're well, always here well, about... And, and just to get this accurate for people that don't know this area, this is the only bridge connecting to that island. That bridge goes down. The only way you get there is through boat or through the air. And the same bridge with Mount Lachey, Pineapple. That's right. They only have that one bridge as well. So you see these images and you're, you know, I was, I was on the East Coast and I was watching these images come in before my friends back home even had internet connections. And, and I was like, what, what just happened to my town? Uh, and, and you start thinking, especially because we grew up here and we remember when they built the causeway, uh, when they, when they, when they built that first span, that A span, that didn't have the, um, the, uh, drawbridge. Remember you said the drawbridge? No, I don't think I remember. Uh, I mean, a long time ago it had the drawbridge in it and they talked about, okay, we're going to have a big span because the drawbridge slows down traffic. It's bad for hurricane evacuations because the boats are going through the people can't get off the island. So, so that was a big factor a few years ago where they, well, a few years ago, my wife always laughs when I say a few or a couple, I'm much older than, than my vernacular allows me to be. So my, uh, so my first thought was, man, this thing took like five years to build because I was thinking of all the government red tape and the processes and the permits and the, uh, the community meetings. And I was like, this is just five years to build this thing. It's going to take forever to get this now. Like even if the funding comes in, FEMA funding is just notoriously late. It takes years. Uh, is, is the city or the county going to have the resources, the reserves to take care of this on top of everything else? Because we're, we're getting pictures of Fort Myers Beach just completely obliterated. And, you know, like the last thing you're thinking of is an island that serves a few thousand people when you have an island with, you know, 30,000 people um, on that on Fort Myers Beach, very, very right, busy, right. or the industry that's on Fort Myers Beach. And, and so you're starting to think about, this is going to take a long time. This is, this just destroyed us and it's a bridge, but the governor, his team was absolutely incredible and they were constantly problem solving the people that I've talked to, uh, who were, who were in constant communication with the governor's office. And, uh, fortunately I was able to get in contact with some of, some of those individuals in the governor's office. I was at the EOC in Tallahassee just a few days after the storm and, uh, was in the EOC watching at nighttime. 
the bridge to Matt Lachey being rebuilt and or is it actually the island? So the bridges, the bridges were fine. It's the islands. And it, it's even it's even more uh, humbling or mind-boggling to think that the islands that connected these bridges were the things that were wiped away. Uh, that's right. The, the, it wasn't just like some concrete that fell over. Right. It was literally the islands. This, the, the initiation, the, inclin the mm -hmm. initial inclination of the bridge you're speaking mm -hmm. to collapsed, and then the, the causeway, the roads mm -hmm. that caused it, wiped out. Just gone. Yeah. Gone. So they're literally taking dump. The solution is to take dump trucks and just dump dirt into the water. But if you dump enough dirt into the water fast enough, eventually you'll create that island again. And then the water will start to flow around that island. So that's what they did. And at, mm. at one point I was in, I was up in the air two weeks ago and it was right after they had begun to bring the trucks out uh, from Southwest, Southeast Lee County, um, full of dirt. There were 170 trucks and they were running 24 seven. And it was a cool video. It's gone over uh, County Mac Island, Iona, and like Shell Point area. And then you come across the causeway, you, you see the uh, Sandoval Harbor, the Marriott Hotel that, that was there. It was, it was actually on the news, basically, as the, um, if you watch the Weather Channel, that was, that was where they were stationed as the hurricane was rolling in. You saw the water come up uh, over the pool there, that whole resort pool just covered right. with, the, with the Gulf of Mexico. And or Pine Island Sound, and then you go right over the bridge, and you see these trucks just lined up, and you see the one like at the very front, just you know turning around and dumping a load of dirt um, into a into the water, and then it's driving off, and then another truck comes up and does the same thing and dumps a load of dirt and drives off, and there was just the dirt just never stopped being dumped into the causeway, and you know here we are. Uh, was it two days ago? The governor was here announcing that it was open. I mean, yeah. they, they, they opened it shortly after that. Within a week, they opened it to get a bunch of FPL trucks out there to the island. But then now it's actually open, like where they can they can drive passenger vehicles across. They can get the owners out there. And I, I think it speaks volumes to what the governor was able to do. You and I know we've all seen how long it takes to build that causeway. It takes years. The governor got it done in weeks. Yeah. Weeks. Oh, and it goes beyond that, too. There was, uh, was it... Uh... Lee County, I think it was Lee County, mm -hmm. Cape Coral, dragging their feet with the power. And they're trying to establish as much power as possible, right? FBL was on it. The governor basically came out and said, listen, I know you're trying to do this by yourself, but you're going to have help. We need to get these people power back in Cape Coral. And sure enough, the next day, you know, it's just enough pressure, but also offering assistance to where they got power back to like, I think the comparison was uh, in, in uh, Lee County, the, like 50% of the, the customers had their power back and Cape Coral was like 7% or 9%. The next day, like 50% of Cape Coral had their power back. And it's all, I, 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 didn't, I didn't vote for DeSantis. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how good he would be. But I got to tell you, man, he's been rocketed since he's been in office. Uh, I'm proud for him to, I'm proud to have him as a governor. And Gilliam, I don't, you know, I think he's in jail, right? I don't even know who you're talking about. Uh, Andrew Gilliam, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, you know, okay. <laughs> there's, <laughs> you got me. So the governor, the governor is somebody I was fortunate enough to get to know back in 2015. 
Um, he was a congressman up in Northeast Florida to South of Jacksonville. And he went to college with a couple of um, guys that were a year older than me at Fort Myers High School. And when he was running for U.S. Senate, because Marco Rubio was looking in 2015 to run for president, and so there was, there was going to be an open Senate seat in 2016. And so Ron DeSantis was campaigning a year early for that and was out raising money. And I met him at a, at a, at a function over at Bell Tower. I got to meet him and his wife, and we started talking. And, uh, we would stay in contact a little bit uh, throughout that election process. And ultimately, Marco Rubio ends up running for re-election for Senate uh, when he didn't have a path to get the Republican nomination for president. And then Governor DeSantis, back then Representative DeSantis, uh, ran for another term of Congress. But he was laying the groundwork for what would ultimately be a president or for a governor's uh, election. Well, he's going to be, he's going to be president. I, I really, I really do think so. I think, well, we'll come back to that for a second. But, but he was, he was just such a, he had a different understanding of politics and of all the politicians I, I had talked to and met with, he was somebody that, that I could identify with. I know you would, if you had the opportunity to meet him, uh, he just, he grew up a very blue collar, upbringing in the 80s you know he played little league baseball obviously at the highest level it seems like everything he did was at the highest level he's super competitive but he he had a good understanding of his mom was a nurse you know and and regardless of who you are if your mom's a nurse uh you know your mom has has been through it uh whether it's whether it's in a hospital a nursing home they're very very good people but they also you can't be a good nurse first of all you can't be a nurse unless you're incredibly smart and you're hardworking. uh and then that combination I think rubs off on your kids and on your family. And his dad, he had, he had a, a very, it's called a basic job of, he installed Nielsen's rating boxes on TVs back then. Wasn't, didn't have some, some big, uh, you know, fortune 500 corporate officer role. He wasn't a lawyer, wasn't a doctor. He just had, he had a, a very similar upbringing, I think, to what you, you or I or our peer groups would have. Yeah, he, we grew up in Florida, yeah. so we could play outside year round. Um, and you probably got really good at sports because nobody was allowed to stay inside back then and you were just forced to play outside and, uh, you got a lot of common sense along with it and your parents had jobs. And so you kind of took care of yourself and you solved a lot of your own problems as a kid. And I think that shows that he doesn't need to rely on somebody or some bureaucracy to get something done. And he's not afraid to tell somebody that they're wrong. Um, but he's also going to help you through it. He's going to stand by you and help you do the heavy lifting. And I think he gets a lot of respect from the, the bureaucrats in Tallahassee and in DC that he's worked with. I think you're right. And I think uh, the thing that you don't hear about, you don't hear about that middle class, blue collar uh, upbringing. And you, and, and you know, just recently, you, you know, you hear that he served in the Navy as well. So he's a JAG officer in the Navy. So extremely intelligent. He went to Harvard for law school, uh, paid his own way through, through school. He actually has some student loans. If you go and look at his financial disclosures, I think he still owes, tens of thousands of dollars in student loans. He, you know, his parents didn't have a trust fund to pay for his college. You know, he did what many of us did in that generation, which was, well, college is a lot more expensive than when my parents went to college, but I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and take out a loan and, and hopefully create a better life for my kids. That's what I did. And that's what the governor did. And you can see it on his financial disclosures. He's not worth a lot of money, um, but he's working really, really, really hard. And I, he believes in the work that he's doing and the people around him, he's surrounded himself with some very intelligent people and very selfless people too. 
Does he qualify for the Biden loan forgiveness? He, he doesn't. Uh, he, well, let me actually. No, it doesn't matter. But uh, also, I want he to might because him. he's married. I don't know how much his wife makes, but he might qualify for. I think my, I, I think it might be ten thousand dollars. Fortunately, I mean, in my position um, now, I'm. It's it's interesting. Like as you get older in life, you start to make a little bit more money um, with your skills, and you can you can provide more for the people in your in your business, and and of course your family. But these programs have come out like it seems like a year after I like finally cleared that last hurdle, yeah. and so I don't qualify for it anymore. But if the program came out the year before, I'd have qualified for it. Right. So it's kind of it's it's a good problem to have. I'm not complaining at all, but there's there's a lot of people who don't qualify for those for those programs, which is good because it means that you know those those two loans were an investment and they actually were able to get back and pay it. Pay it well, and I think that's another example of government getting involved when they probably shouldn't gotten involved. And I think you could make a very uh, rational argument that it made matters worse as far as student loan debt and the price of education and whether or not you even need to go to college. But that's another topic. I do want to say that... John, but it's also, just to cut you off, it's yeah. also one of those other examples of the government creates a problem so big that only the government can solve it. Right. It's, it's a scheme. It's, it's like working with the mafia. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Your house burned down, but I fixed you another house. But you owe me seven times more for that house. Right. Like, and I didn't want you to rebuild it. <laughs> and you can't declare bankruptcy. Yeah, exactly. I, I, on only that house. Everything else you can, but not anything that you owe me. Exactly. Now, I also want to say John was endorsed by DeSantis, as well as Ray Rodriguez. And I do want to come out and say, uh, uh, formally, I want to say, if it wasn't for John, I wouldn't have had the, the assistance. My, my son, I'm going to tell the story. My, we have, in, down here, we have school choice, right? And it's really stupid and dumb, but it's, it's basically they're trying to, like, fend off segregation, and, and which, in reality, it just creates more segregation, to be honest with you. We live two miles away from school or 2.1, 2.2 miles from uh, school. And my son, we requested him to go to this school, and then we said another school, and then you have to rank these, all these schools that your, their son would go to. Our last choice was a school, and I don't want to mention it by name, but it's horrendous. It's, there's a lot of violence, there's crime, there's gangs over there. It's in a very bad neighborhood. So of course- But also I, it's how far from your house. Yeah, it's extremely far from my house. It's completely out of the way. Um, and what happens, you know, it's almost like a lottery situation. And, you know, we're on, you know, we're on the computer right away. And then all of a sudden, it's, you know, overload and whatnot. It doesn't matter. My son doesn't get into those schools. And he's on the wait list. And then we're told he's not going to get into that school at all. Because there's not enough spots. Go, you need to put him on and for this other school. So we did. And then he started to get pushed back. And he was like, he was like number one on the wait list. And we're, we were, they told us. The school board oh he's gonna get into that school I know it's a little bit further out of the way um, it's a good school but he's not going to go to the one that he was selected to go to which is a really bad school so we're waiting for him to get in and he keeps getting pushed back he goes from being the number one on the wait list to being number three number four and then six and then nine. And I'm like what is going on meanwhile I tell my wife that this is enough we're gonna reach out to our local politicians and you really had to advocate for yourself and I reached out to John just to ask him what, ask him what his perspective is and what his opinion, not to pull any strings, 
Well, I wasn't even running for anything back no. then. But you, did, you didn't pull any strings. Yeah. He didn't. I was already in, communi in communication with uh, a number of um, uh, the school board, uh, a number of the politicians, and they were just blowing me off. And John just gave me his advice. He just kept, hey, just keep hammering them. Reach out to Ray Rodriguez. Uh, he'll give you some support. Reach out to Jenna Parsons. Uh, uh, Jenna Parsons, um, what's her name? Sorry? Molika. Molika. And uh, Ray Rodriguez was great. We didn't speak to him personally. We spoke to his office, but they got on it. Jenna uh, didn't hear anything from her. Couldn't get a hold of her. Um, and then uh, Giovanelli was excellent. She was a great advocate. Um, and sure enough, we go, we go school board, and then we go to school board representatives, then we go to state uh, congressmen and women, then we go to the senator, then, we, then we're like, okay, next step, we're going we're gonna to email uh, Ron DeSantis. And then from there, we'll go congressional. By the time we got to Ray Rodriguez, and within a week's time, they go, oh, your son's been accepted to the school of your choice. And it was just amazing that he, he, he got in. And which made my wife feel a lot better because you know she didn't have to worry about him being, you know, susceptible to this violent atmosphere in this bad neighborhood. But I just want to reach out and say thank you to to John for giving me his ear and his advice, uh, as well as all the other individuals that were a part of that process. But um, you know, nevertheless, Ray Rodriguez also endorsed John along with uh, Rob DeSantis. So uh, John's going to become an excellent. Um, politician, but why? Why politics at this point in your life? Because you've been doing really well as an attorney. Why politics? So I think I think you can go back to um, everybody can kind of go back to one point in their life when they realized that they were going to go down a certain path, whether it was good, whether it was bad. You know, a life of crime, or whether it was I want to be an engineer, or I want to get into healthcare, but. I can go back to about the 10th grade and there were, there were a couple things that, that happened in my life where I realized, you know what, maybe I should, maybe I should get into law. Um, and, and it was, uh, the overriding issue ironically was, uh, or maybe coincidentally was the school board in Lee County. Um, they, they voted to allow a Bible history course, a secular Bible history course to be taught in high schools in Lee County. And then the ACLU came in and sued him and said, you can't do that. You can't teach kids religion. There's separation of church and state. And I know you touched on this with, a, with another program with Todd that, that we all grew up in McGregor Baptist. Um, and, you know, I, I remember listening and I was like, well, I grew up, I went to a Christian school up through sixth grade. I was always in the pews on Sunday morning and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And you were awake. It, yeah, Tom I was had like, Tom, well, Todd had coffee. Todd had to have coffee. He's a thirteen-year-old. So, so I was I was maybe more aware of like, hey, you know, the Bible doesn't have some. It, it has a lot of good advice in there. There's a lot of good things in here. Why can't my friends in public schools at least hear about it? And at this point in tenth grade, we were in our English classes. We were reading about um, ancient religions in in Greece and Rome and the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like this, these were religions. You know, we. You learn about mythology. That was a religion. But for some reason, the second you start talking about uh, the Jews 
escaping Egypt and relying on God to feed them in the wilderness for 40 years. And the second you talk about uh, God sending Jesus to die on the cross, all of a sudden that's the religion that you can't talk about. I was like, but our, our country was founded by people who uh, had a very strong understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament at the very least when they wrote these documents that we all swear to uphold and follow. And part of the reading requirements for their education two, three hundred years ago was reading the Bible and understanding that and debating the Bible. And that was what formed their frame of mind. So if I want to understand my constitution better, then why can't we learn, at least at the very least, a secular standpoint? No, no altar calls, nobody asking for money, nobody sending missionaries anywhere, but can we at least like read the Bible and like find out some of the historical context? And that was like to learn that there was an organization out there called the ACLU that just like shut that down, came in and sued the school district. I was like, what are they trying to hide? Uh, and why can't my friends learn about the stuff that I know that is, that is very important? And so at that point in my life, I saw, you know, there's, uh, there's opportunities to get involved. And if you don't get involved, uh, somebody else is going to be making decisions for you. And those decisions could affect the very books that you're allowed to read. And I thought that um, that was definitely something that I wanted to pursue and learn more about. So I went on to college. I majored in political science. I actually chose to go to a liberal school so that I could learn things that uh, maybe I wasn't learning uh, growing up in a conservative Christian home. Um, and I majored in political science there. I got involved in student government, did all that. And then I went to law school. And uh, I came back and got involved in the Republican Party and also uh, started my legal career as a prosecutor where I had to learn how basically where the politics meets the road. Like there's politics that affects legislation and legislation turns into laws that prosecutors then enforce. And so I started to learn the whole circle, how, how laws... Um, not only are created, that's that's all theoretical. You learn about that. You learn about the process in college. But, hey, this is this is where the rubber meets the road. Like, these laws affect lives. You know, there's victims. There's there's bad people out there. Uh, how can we make these laws work better so that, they're in, so that their intent is actually followed through? So I really got to, got to fall into the enforcement um, of the law. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed helping people with that. And, uh, you know, you can fast forward 15 years and this is where I am today. No, I think that's a good, uh, I like to hear that. Uh, I think what you said uh, that you would, uh, would want to happen is what the ACLU used to stand for. Yeah. Different perspectives. You know, if you're learning about, like you said, mythology, you're learning about Buddhism, you're doing, learning about Confucianism or Hinduism, then you should probably learn a little bit about Christianity. You shouldn't be, shouldn't be a sermon, but maybe, you know, it, why not, right? Right. What's what are they scared of? But they're exactly, exactly. And I don't know what they're doing now, but they're not the ACLU of old, where they fought for that diversity. And we, they, I mean, when they were when they were uh, representing Nazis, they argued, you know, that if somebody's controlling you and telling you what you can and cannot listen to or talk about, who makes those decisions? Yeah. And that's exactly what you just said. And and fast forward or. Fast forward from there to two years ago when we're we're discussing COVID, you know, and what's what role does the government have, the federal government, the state government, local government, with regulating um, health choices that individuals have? Like, all right, well, we're waiting for the ACLU to show up and like start pushing back, right? Because they never they never represented the wealthy or the establishment or the pharmaceutical companies, right? They always represented the, the individual 
uh, person who was on the fringes. That was like their, that was who they wanted to represent. That's who they wanted to be known to represent. They represent the criminals who were in, in prison serving life sentences or on death row. And they were the ones fighting for their rights. Um, and that's where they, they carved out their, their market. And I was like, well, why aren't you fighting for these people over here that just lost their jobs? Right. Or the nurses that have COVID antibodies in their system because they had COVID and recovered before the vaccine ever existed. Why are you not fighting for those people to, to maintain their jobs? And they were just silent at the business owners uh, and, not, and not, again, not even the business owners who were fighting the government to stay open, but the business owners who wanted the ability to speak their minds on social media uh, or in the newspaper, like the ACLU was nowhere to be found defending their free speech. It's like, what, yeah, what did they do? I think, I don't know. I, I feel, I don't want to get conspiracy mm-hmm. theorists here, but I do feel like the institutions have been corrupted so much that they're no longer representing what they originally represented. And to go back to your point about healthcare, you know, I've explored this this thought for so long. You know, I think it's great. I think I would love the idea of universal health care for everybody, in particular children, because I don't think it's a child's fault that they're born into a family that doesn't have the resources or the money or uh, even the, the, the guardians that care about them enough to, like, you know, provide health care. So I would like that. But at the same time, I don't see the accountability from the individual. I don't see the responsibility of the individual to be healthy. And so you wonder, okay, they have greater access, but what are they doing for themselves? And maybe the right model is a private model in which they decide, you know, whether they want to spend money on healthcare or not, you know, for insurance purposes. And they decide what they're doing to their health. And then when they pay the consequences, they know that they should make a better decision or be more accountable or responsible for their actions. I don't know what the, the answer is, but I'm tending to start to lean towards that. So one of, one, of, one of the issues that I've seen kind of pop up, pop its head up uh, and, and go across many different disciplines where we, we're trying to study and we're trying to find solutions. Just, you think about those kids, you think about, okay, who's, who's driving that kid to McDonald's every day? It's not the kid, it's the parents. Do we have parents that are educated enough in health? Um, you know, we used to have, when, when our parents were in high school, there were home ec classes that they could take where it involved a little bit more than just balancing a checkbook. It involved, you know, preparing a proper dinner and, and nutrition and uh, yeah, maybe the, the government pyramid of uh, having all those carbs at the bottom of that pyramid, maybe, that's, maybe that needs to be thrown out. But there was an understanding that Home-cooked meals were better for you than eating out, and uh, there were there was more education. There, I think there was a better understanding of of the role that the family had in providing health for their family, and we don't have a lot of that anymore. And we have families that you know, single-parent households, a lot of kids, and and we have parents that are kind of uh, stretched very thin, and they can't provide that additional resource to their kids regarding diet, but you go to school and, and the kids just don't have good options and good healthy options to eat at school. And we have the federal government just looking at our budget here in, in Lee County, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent every year to feed the kids that go to Lee County public schools. But the food that they eat is far from some healthy options. It's, it's just not good. And that of course leads to bad choices down the road and it leads to bad health. And then society ends up picking up the cost for that health, whether it's through, Medicaid, without even having 
universal medical care. You're paying Medicaid. You're paying a lot of Medicare disability for people that, that have diabetes, kidney failure at very young ages because of their diets. Um, and, and you just don't have the option to uh, sit back and watch people take care of themselves anymore. Um, the government is it's getting involved, again, universal health care or not, the government is spending an incredible amount of money on very many levels between the federal and state government to take care of the consequences of bad diets and, and unhealthy decisions. Well, you're right, though. They're not learning a lot that much anymore anyway, but aside from like OMEC and PE being slashed, they're also not learning about civics either. Um, you know, I think we're going to probably need to wrap this up a little bit. But could you could you discuss the differences as far as, you know, because we're not getting this education in school, uh, between state government and the federal government? Because there's been some confusion. You're running for a state senate, but you're not running for the for the uh, uh, federal senate. Right. And, and so some people get confused with that. Can you uh, speak to that? Yeah, so originally under, you just go back to the founding of our country, we had the Articles of Confederation that kind of looped, looped a bunch of independent states together. And then that had no teeth. So a few years later, the, uh, the founders got together and said, all right, we need something with teeth. And by teeth, meaning they didn't, they didn't have the ability to raise money. They didn't have the ability to enforce any of its rules um, as, as that federation. So they said, all right, let's create a national government. Let's create a government that's um, that kind of is like the glue that holds the other colonies together. So that's when the Declaration of Independence, sorry, that's when the um, U.S. Constitution was signed. Uh, they, they said, let's give the federal government, or I should say the word national government, that's, the, that's how the uh, founders described it back then when they wrote, because the federal government refers to all the governments together, the federation, uh, the combination of all the states. So the national government is what we is what we think of when we see Washington D.C. and our U.S. senators, the president of the United States, our U.S. Congress people, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, you know, the FBI is under the Department of Justice. That's part of the national government. But on the state level, the states are very important. Even despite the Seventeenth Amendment, uh, despite some some case law from the early 1900s that uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court used to open up the interpretation or widen the application of the interstate commerce clause, which is in the constitution. Um, but ultimately the states are where the original jurisdiction is at the U S constitution. It's interesting if, when you read the amendments said, um, they're, they're basically directed, uh, towards the federal government or towards the national government in relation to the states. So the national government can't, restrict your free speech. The national government can't prevent you from owning a firearm. The national government uh, can't arrest you uh, without due process. They can't prosecute you without due process. They can't prosecute you or punish you um, uh, without um, all the, with, without a, a ton of requirements that have been explored in the case law over the last couple hundred years. But the states, is, the states had all the original autonomy. And governors to this day are very important. And that's why the governor has to ask the president to send the National Guard. So the governor, um, this, the National Guard is not allowed to come to a different state unless the governor of that state actually asks the president for it or gives the, government permit, gives the president permission to bring the National Guard. Uh, it's a, the states still have control of their own, of their own National Guard. Uh, they still have um, 
it, it's, it's almost like they're, they're individual countries uh, with their jurisdiction. They were, they were the ones that were supposed to take care of the health and the safety and the morality or the welfare of, of the people. And the, the national government was very limited in the Constitution to just handling a few well-defined roles. One of those roles is you, you take care of the borders. Another role is you issue currency. Um, those are things that the national government can do. The state of Florida can't go and start creating money. The state of Florida can't go and you know build a border wall and say no one's coming in here. That's the national government's job. And that's where you see a lot of the interplay between you know, what the governor in Texas and the governor in Florida are doing with, with some of these problems. Like, well, what can the state of Florida do to go enforce um, immigration laws? They can, uh, but they can get creative. And that's why you see that pushing back and forth with some of these different um, different options that basically try to let other people know in other states what's actually happening down here. Uh, because they can't just go and deport people. They can't send people to other countries. Uh, and that's that's where you start to see those defined roles take place. But uh, most of the states are set up very similar to the national government, of course, because we all kind of came from uh, the same understanding of, of what government should look like and what government should be and what its role should do or what its role should be. So we have bicameral legislatures. We have senates and we have the House. We have uh, the chief executive, who is the governor, and it's very similar to the president. So when you have a state representative and a state senator, uh, it does, in fact, very much mirror the roles, and, and the rules they follow are very similar to the rules that that the U.S. representatives and the U.S. senators follow. But their jobs are very different because they don't—they're not supposed to control or oversee or regulate the same types of industries. Okay, I, I love it. I'm so glad that you uh, spoke to that, and I'm so glad that because that, that helps people understand the separation. Of powers and the differences and, and what they can uh, affect and actualize. And again, though, if it wasn't for Ray Rodriguez, my son would have been sent off to a school that was just not very, that we were not situated for, and nor was it a healthy environment for him to be in. Um, is there any other, anything else you want to talk about for your constituents? That I, I plan on having you back if we can talk further, unless you, you know, you might get pretty busy. So. Yeah, I mean, we've we've been busy, but of, of course, um, you know, I'd love to carve out time uh, and and just have these conversations, whether anyone's listening or not, um, that that is from Southwest Florida or that's going to vote for me or have their mind changed. Um, I think it's important to have these conversations because it allows us to to see things from a different perspective. Like I live in this legal bubble. I work downtown. Uh, actually, my Senate office will be just one block away from my law office, and. You know, I see the same people and I do the same things on a, on a regular basis, but it's important that I, that I see how our challenges are similar and how they're different. You know, we were all hit by the same storm just a few weeks ago, but our challenges are, are definitely different. And I want to be able to help and I want my office, just like Senator Rodriguez's office was able to help in your situation, I want to make sure my office is able to help as many people as possible because um, we know what hit us three weeks ago. We don't know what we're going to be dealing with three weeks from now. We don't know what's around the corner next year, and we got to make sure that uh, that all parts of the community, uh, everybody who who thinks differently, who thinks the same, who lives in different parts of the community, who who makes different amounts of money, we all got to make sure that that we're on the same page and that we're moving forward together. Because if um, if anybody gets left behind uh, with any of these changes that that are natural or artificial, uh, 
artificially created through government, then our community won't look the same uh, on the other side. So uh, any opportunity to, to talk to you guys and, and work through any problems, I look forward to it. Well, I mean, you know, our group of friends, we're not really yes men, so we'll keep it real for you, sure. <laughs> um, the, the cool thing is, you know, you both are Gator fans. I'm a Florida State guy. John's going to go to some of these Florida State games. I hope you're going to root for Florida State instead of doing the Gator thing and, you know, rooting against them. Look, my wife is a double Gator. She mm -hmm. was she was there from 03 to 2011. Uh, went to law school there. Was there for all the football and men's basketball championships. And uh, she, I want to make sure my marriage stays <laughs> stays together. Being in Tallahassee during a legislative session is going to be stressful enough. Having three little kids added to that is going to be stressful enough. I'm not going to try to pick a fight with her over uh, rooting for Florida State. Well, I think Paul and Mike are already talking about. When we're going up to Tallahassee to visit you, have a little you know party weekend, and uh, go see a game. Um, Mike is definitely Mike and Todd. Oh, we'll sure. definitely go to some games. And look, yeah. as long as the Gators aren't playing, um, I'll probably be able to root for the Seminoles. See, he's a Florida boy all the way around. I love it. Um, all right, man. Uh, you have any questions at all? I I don't think so. Uh, you wanna... You're gonna vote for him now? Did he win you over? Uh, yeah. Okay, because if you said no, we we're going to keep talking. <laughs> no, I think you got my vote. All right, John, anything else you want to say, or do you want to provide any contact information in case anybody wants to reach out to you? Yeah, I, I'm on social media. I have a, a campaign website, votejmartin.com. You can get more information there. You can reach out. However, you want to help, again, this, this campaign, there's there's a lot going on in our community. Uh, my priority as, as was being involved in politics is, I've uh, been making sure that other good candidates on other races and at competitive races are well represented and, and people are able to go out and vote. Um, so if you have any trouble getting to the polls, give me a call, uh, reach out to my campaign, and I'll do everything I can to make sure that you have the opportunity to exercise your constitutional right. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for being here. Wait, let me, I, let me, I do have a question now. When, when do we vote? When is it? Uh... So early voting starts October 24th which is Monday, okay. and there's gonna be 12 locations around the state, or sorry, around the county, just in Lee County, okay. where you can early vote. And those early voting locations will be open up through election day, which is November 5th. And then um, you can of course vote at your precinct, where whatever your precinct is located. Um, and those were recently changed, so if you need to find your precinct, you can go to the Supervisor of Elections office. Sorry, I said November 5th. I meant November 8th. November 5th is a Saturday that early voting wasn't a close, but now it's open through November 8th. But okay. if you if you need to help finding your uh, voting precinct here in Lee County, you can go to lee.vote. So not lee.com, but lee.vote. And you can find your precincts uh, with your current address. You can also find sample ballots in case you didn't have an absentee ballot mailed uh, or in case you lost your mailbox in the storm and you don't have the ability to get an absentee ballot mailed to you. And then you'll have, again, the ability to vote early voting. There's 12 locations throughout the county. There's multiple here in, in Cape Coral. Uh, the closest one to Fort Myers Beach in Sanibel is at the, the Wakahatchee Park, which is right where the, it's on the south side of Summerlin, close to Bass Road, where Lexington Middle School is. There's a county park back there and they have, they'll be set up um, again starting Monday, October 24th, all the way through November 8th. You can vote there. Okay. Where are you going to be for the celebration? I'm working on that. 
working on that. Uh, the the local county Republican Party uh, likes to put on one giant event where all the all the local Republican candidates can attend. Uh, two years ago, we did a we did a party over at the ranch, um, and that, that served a good venue. So we're hopefully going to have some more details to come out uh, real soon about that uh, regarding that location. You know, and it's, there's a question about power and resources. I'm pretty sure Paul could pull some strings over at Babcock Ranch. Well, that's in Charlotte County. So that's okay. That's, I mean, that's really we'll far go away. Out, we'll, go out this, we'll go out there and hang out. All right, no problem. Hey, thanks a lot for coming in. Um, and we'll have you on again down the road. And we Good appreciate it, John. Thank Good you luck. very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Bye, everyone.